Hello and welcome back to the Not So Fit Couple podcast with your hosts, Lucy Davis. And Benjamin Holden. On today's episode, we have Zach Bitter and he is an American ultramarathon runner and has held world records for the 100 mile run and the 12 hour run. He completed 100 miles, which is 160K, in a time of 11 hours, 19 minutes and 13 seconds. Zach's an endurance athlete and coach. He's broken multiple world and American records throughout his whole career and has helped thousands of runners reach their personal goals. In this week's episode, we'll be covering the mindset of an ultramarathon runner, what it takes, his nutrition, his training, some of the mistakes that other runners make when they're going into their first marathons or ultramarathons, the type of shoes and shoe mistakes that people make, and then also the best times to poo. Enjoy this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the Not So Fit Couple podcast on YouTube and also leave a cheeky little review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Enjoy. So thanks for coming on today, Zach. Massively appreciated. And both, yeah. both me and Lucy are huge fans and we're really fascinated by your accomplishments and your story and just the fucking crazy feats and accomplishments that you've managed over your career so far. And especially with since me and Lucy have gotten more and more into running and Lucy signed up for her first ultra. I've signed up for my first marathon this year. Would you mind just explaining and telling people a little bit about a little bit about your achievements and your sort of history of running? Yeah. Yeah. I got into running, I think, uh, at a pretty early age. Uh, you know, I was curious about sports in general, loved them. My parents were very kind of I proactive that I was doing something, I guess I would say they didn't really care what it was as long as I wasn't at home watching TV and playing video games all day long is, you know, get out there. And so like, uh, I, my first exposure to running was just doing like physical education type stuff, like presidential physical fitness and then track and field day in middle school. That's where I kind of learned that I was probably a little better at running than say football or basketball or baseball or some of the more kind of prompt popular team sports here in the U S and, uh, you know, by the time I was uh, junior in high school, I was basically focusing on just running as my primary sport for cross country and track and wasn't doing too much of the other sports anymore, other than just kind of like pick up stuff with friends in the afternoons every once in a while. But uh, college is where I kind of really fell in love with running, I think, in a way that uh, made it something that I knew was gonna be part of my life uh, for as long as I could make it that way. And that part of that was just kind of getting curious enough to really understand the hows and whys, like versus just say doing a workout because the coach told you to do a workout or doing a workout because you saw someone else say, this is going to get you faster at this specific race. So I kind of maybe transitioned a little bit from trying to just compete to trying to actually see like, well, what do I do to get better and why? And uh, one of the things I kind of learned through that process was this, like, I really enjoyed the long run. Like usually in college, we'd have a fairly like, routine structure during the season where you would do kind of like short intervals on one day of the week you would do like a tempo or threshold run another day our races would oftentimes be on Saturdays and we'd do a long run on Sundays and you'd kind of just rinse and repeat that for the most part you would change some things due to course environment and things like that and as your fitness develops and whether you're targeting say like a 3k or a 5k or a 10k uh, but the thing that stuck out to me is when I kind of had that more of a grand perspective uh, was the run, long run was the one I looked forward to the most out of the week. And uh, so after college, I didn't have like the team structure there anymore. I, I kind of just started only doing long runs for a couple of years. Uh, and, and that kind of led me into like a few marathons that I would say I did mostly like 
mostly unstructured. I, I, I think I did a pretty solid buildup once, but uh, it ended up being like 30 mile an hour winds on the day that I raced it. So it was like really hard to tease out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't really was able to tease out whether it worked as well or not um, from prior experiences. And you know, as any like pro marathoner will tell you, it's like, that's just like a game of like, you just keep going and going and going, and then you pop one off. So it's, uh, I, I kind of transitioned away from that and started focusing on ultra marathons much earlier than I originally expected. I, I assumed after college, when I did my first marathon that I would do marathons and some shorter stuff until my thirties, and then maybe try some ultra marathons. Uh, I was just barely aware of ultra marathons enough to know that they existed. And uh, I happened to stumble upon a 50 miler that was pretty close to where I was living at the time. And that uh, was interesting enough to me. I, I was 24, I believe. And I think I thought, uh, I'm going to do it and then probably never do it again for another six or seven years. Uh, I did it. And then as fate would have it, by that time next year, I was only doing ultra marathons. So, <laughs> so that's kind of how the, the, the journey started. And from there, it was just, you know, more and more learning. You know, you learn a whole bunch of new stuff about a different kind of a different sport almost. It's still running, but it's uh, it's kind of flipped on its head where race day tends to be slower miles than a lot of your quality sessions tend to be in training. And, uh, and then there's a way to kind of go about that. And then there's also huge environmental shifts where, you know, you might run somewhere where it's a hundred plus degrees Fahrenheit, or you might run somewhere where it's below zero Fahrenheit. And, or you might run somewhere where you're going up and down steep mountains and things like that on technical train, or you can find yourself like I have many times on a 400 meter track and just seeing how far you can get or how fast you can do a specific distance in a very controlled environment. And that was really interesting to me is learning, like, how do you prepare for these kind of varying differences in races? And as a sport's grown, it's like something I think you almost have to pick, like, especially almost now to really be successful at a very, very high level, because there's just very few people who can still maybe jump between say flat runnable races and really mountainous ones and, and, and get to their best. And with more and more competition entering the sport, uh, someone's going to peak specifically for that race. So if they have any, any margin of talent relative to yours, then, you know, if, if you come off the mountains down to a track, you have a hard time, or if you yeah. come off the track up into the mountains, you're going to have a hard time. So it's an interesting kind of environment as we speak. Yeah, that's cool. And obviously you're, you're super experienced now and running, but with, I think I read somewhere, it was your first long race that you did as a grad student because, uh, yeah. like the financial <laughs> rewards for it. Yeah, that was one of the That's polls. Cool. I think, uh, it, you know, I did a lot of local marathons and there yeah. was, I think there was maybe some prize money at a couple, but it was really like, yeah, I wasn't going to get it. It was going to be like, you know, I'd be on the outside looking in at that for the most part. So like, when I saw the, the at this 50 mile, I think it had like a thousand dollars as prize money. And I had yeah. just, yeah, I had just uh, finished my undergrad, finished student teaching. And I decided to go back to school to get, uh, get a, to, to pursue a master's in education, but also pick up my special education license. So that was about a year. And once I kind of uh, decided to do that, that fall, uh, I guess it was, early, it was like September it was this 50 miler. I was like, I think I could win that. And it's got a thousand dollars. That'd be great. So I, uh, I went, I won it, got the thousand dollars and like four days later, my car broke down and I was thinking all thousand dollars. So it's like a win, a win loss scenario. That, that's a cool, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a cool story that, that kind of, that, that got you hooked into the, the long run as well, because Lucy's story of how she, she signed up for F first well, 100k is a funny story as well. Yeah. So in, I've come from an endurance background. I used to be a GB swimmer, but swimming mm -hmm. is very different to running. 
And so I knew the capacity was there. And last year I said to Ben, I'd absolutely love to do something that's ridiculously challenging. Because I've only last week ran my first marathon. I said to Ben, I think I'm going to enter an ultra because obviously you have the 50k as a starter or the 100k. Well, we, mm-hmm. I think in the UK, we definitely go for more kilometers than miles, don't we? Yeah, yeah we always say yeah. K. And I had committed in my head as like a New Year's resolution, I'm going to do this 100k, but I hadn't booked it. I was holding off a little bit, a little bit nervous. Obviously, it's quite a, a feat when you've never even done a marathon. And on New Year's Eve, I had had so much red wine and I was very <laughs> drunk. I basically just booked my ultra that evening and I woke up the next day and I was like, I've I've got my 100K in July. Like what the fuck have I done? Yeah. <laughs> like what have I done? But I was like, I've paid, I've committed. I'm doing mine for charity as well. So I've got a bit of like an emotional attachment to it. But I honestly don't think even to this day I would have booked it yet because it's, for me, it's quite a scary thing because it's not, I'm a... I'm a lifter, I lift weights and I'm an endurance athlete. So I'm mixing both and it's getting used to the volume. Did my first marathon last week. But I think when you jump and do that commitment and I've paid, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm accountable to paying, it, it's it's going to be exciting. I'm nervous, but it's going to be, it's going to be cool. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, there's something about putting money down that uh, yeah, drives you. That? My college experience. <laughs> I started taking education way more serious when money was coming <laughs> in my pocket for it. <laughs> yeah, 100%. One of, the, one, of the, one of the big ones, Zach, which I still can't even comprehend is, was it the 12-hour track run? And was it Mill, I can't even say the word, is it Milwaukee or something? How do you say it? Yeah, I was at the Olympic training facility in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We have got these like facilities that this one was designed specifically for the Winter Olympics. So they had like a speed skating rink and like three hockey rinks in the middle. So when they built it, they put a track around that speed skating rink. So they ended up having like, I think it's about 438 meter uh, track loop in there. And they held uh, an event in, it would have been August in 2019. Uh, and I did a 12 hour, 100 mile uh, effort there. And that's, that's where I've run my fastest 100 miler. That's crazy because I think I was looking at the time for that and the pace for that 12-hour event is like running four, is it four three-hour marathons back-to-back? Yeah, I think it comes out to like four 258 marathons consecutively. And it was ironically enough, that was also like probably my best paced race. I, I actually negative split it, meaning the second half I ran two minutes faster than the first half. So like I actually wow. ran probably pretty close to four, like roughly 248 or 258 marathons versus having like one be like a 240 and another one be like a 315 or something like that, which yeah. is not too uncommon in ultra running. You have these like pretty big positives, but sometimes in the hundred mile races. That, that is incredible. That is when, so when you're doing these, this 12 hours round a track, did you have a point where you're just like, I want to stop? I'm 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 bored of running around a track yeah. and it's it's consistency and it's just the same thing because your mindset must be so impeccable for that like that's in that's incredible. Yeah, you know it's interesting because I think it's definitely different than say like I mean I've run plenty of hundred milers on the trails too and it's uh, it's just a different mindset I think I don't necessarily know that it's harder or easier. I think it's, uh, you have to just know what to look for because things don't present themselves quite the same way. So like if I'm doing a trail hundred mile and I hit like a rough patch, 
it's a little easier to kind of uh, cope with that because you're just like, okay, well, I hit that hill at the wrong time. My pace slowed down, but it's really tough to kind of run quick math and realize like how much you slow down. Whereas when you're on a track like that, you have access to your lap splits every lap if you want it. So if you're slowing down, say like two seconds per lap, then you know it's because you slow down. Like that track did not change. Though if it's an indoor track like it was at the Pettit Center, that <laughs> weather did not change. Uh, there, no wind picked up, you know, it was all you. So that I think causes a scenario where it's very easy to have things kind of spiral in a negative direction a lot quicker. So uh, one, I mean, in that particular event around mile 40, I actually was kind of heading down that route for a little bit. I had to run a couple laps or a few laps where I was kind of falling off the pace. Usually I'll come in with like a pace target of like maybe three to four seconds per lap spread. And I'm just trying to hit a window in there. And I was kind of drifting, drifting out on the slow end of that and around mile 40. So I was thinking to myself, well, maybe I just don't have it today. Maybe today's not the day. Maybe mm -hmm. I should kind of readjust my goal, run a good quality run, but then like, you know, push the a effort down the road to a different event or something like that. And, uh, before I made that decision, I had just enough background knowledge from previous ones to know that like you can make these decisions too early sometimes. And then the next day you're kind of kicking yourself and wondering, well, what if I would have just pushed a little harder and tried to hang on for a while? And so I just said, okay, I'm going to just going to do a few more laps within the range. I'm going to like force myself to run within the range and just kind of see how that develops. And if, if after a couple of miles, it's like still heading the wrong direction, I can always, you know, adjust at that point. Yeah. So I did that. And then I started kind of gaining momentum. I started hitting my splits again. I started to end up running on the faster end of them. And I started kind of running some math in my head as to like where I would have hit 50 miles and where I would hit hundred K. And, uh, when I hit those marks, I actually got there sooner than where my calculations were. So like, uh, that was kind of momentum. I started just like, you can kind of spiral in a negative direction on the track really fast. You can do it in a positive one too. Cause it's just a couple lap splits on pace and also, okay, I'm back into it. I'm back at it. And then, then I think it's just about kind of chunking the race properly. And when I find that I have my worst races or struggle the most is when mentally I'm fixated on finishing mm -hmm. uh, throughout the entire race or huge chunks of the race versus knowing what pace I can sustain based on my fitness and my training, and then working on small benchmarks along the way and kind of just blocking out that hundred mile number until mm -hmm. you get to a point where it's like within range of something you've done more recently. So I oftentimes look to a spot where what was kind of my average long run or my longest long run. And roughly in that territory is when I can start thinking about like one more long run versus running a hundred miles or like start kind of focusing on what I want to do to kind of finish strong versus thinking about that at say miles 10, 15, 20, and kind of fatiguing myself mentally and putting yourself in a position to kind of drain your mental energies to the point where you can't really fight those mental demons later in the race when they do creep up. I'm definitely going to take tips away for that. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think what, what is going through my head, and I know what a lot of people are thinking is, what is going through Zach's head over a 12-hour period? Like Because the question that we often get is, how do you not get bored doing longer runs? And I think once you've got a love for running, that sort of changes. But I still think for a lot of people that are maybe newer to running as well, it's how do they break that boredom of doing the longer runs. So what, what sort of things are going through your head when you're doing like these 12 our runs which are, are super intense as well and you know that there's a there's a long duration there mm -hmm. yeah it, it's interesting because i think there's huge chunks of it where i am certainly thinking about stuff but i'm also kind of in a bit of a like almost of a, me a meditative flow state where 
you're you're intuitive enough with like the pacing because you've practiced it that you just kind of can feel that you're hitting the right pace and you can spot check which is what yeah. i do i don't look at the split every lap i'll look at it uh every occasion and make sure i'm in range if i'm in range i just go back to like not looking for a while and then i'll check in again if i'm out of range then i'll like pay attention for a while and get myself dialed back in but i'll tune out for huge chunks of it and just kind of just be running and for those, I, I'm sure I'm thinking of stuff, but I probably forget it. But there is a lot from the stuff I can kind of pull from and recall. It's just a lot of just kind of thinking about uh, like what it like just the process of getting there, uh, you know, just kind of reflecting on that. Because I always find that that makes it a lot more manageable when you think about, say, the four months or six months that you took to prepare for the specific race. Because if you look at it through that lens, you find yourself in a position where now all of a sudden 100 miles isn't barely that much yeah, comparatively. Yeah from a time perspective and even a distance perspective, any perspective really. So uh, then I'll, I'll, in order to kind of appease that, I'll be thinking like, oh yeah, I remember back in the early part of the training when I was doing those short intervals or I remember kind of in the middle of my plan when I was focusing on like long intervals and things like that and, and hitting workouts and just trying to pull from experiences from the training that will give me kind of positive feelings about what I'm capable of doing. And that's usually where I like to push my headspace is anytime I can think of something that's going to be a positive piece or something that's going to motivate me. I try to hang on to that as long as I can. And then it's about also catching when those negative stuff creep in there and making sure you can redirect before it sits in and kind of festers for too long. So like other things I'll think about too, like there's, there's both kind of like optimistic angles or reassuring angles, as well as like, I'm going to prove this kind of an angle. <laughs> and like the optimistic angles are just thinking about like, you know, oh man, when I did that 31 and a half mile long run at, you know, 629 per mile average, I felt so good at the end of that. I, that's going to be how this plays out today. So thinking about like everything that I did during that and that experience killed some time and kind of helps me stay positive. Or one that really helped for me in that race in 2019 that we were just talking about was, uh, I had a race earlier in 2015 where I was ahead of world record pace at mile 80 and fell off enough to lo lose the world record pace. Uh, so I had this like this experience in my head where mile 80 was like this spot where if I could get back there in that position, I'd have this chance to kind of redeem that situation or uh, take another a shot at, uh, at doing it right this time or doing a better job of it. So mm -hmm. thinking kind of like more of like, I'm going to do it right this time, kind of I don't want to call it a negative thought, but it's also, it's kind of like channeling. It's kind of like channeling rage a little more than channeling yeah. like optimism, I guess. And so you, you kind of want to pull both those levers, I think, and just know when, when to do it and when to kind of lay off of one or the other. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I think there's, there's just been another marathon. I don't know if it was last weekend or the weekend before that. The Tokyo one. Was it Tokyo? That Chip, so. Chip Cody dude run that arguably one of the best marathon runners yeah. of, of all time. And obviously broke that two hour barrier, which is just, mind-blowingly crazy yeah uh, have you have you tried running that that the pace that he runs at for the marathon because what we're doing is a bit of a uh, a video next week is we're trying to get like a load of bodybuilders together and see how long they can run at that chip code you pays for which would be quite if what, they can get what, to the pace one entertaining i'm sure we'll end up with, <laughs> sure we'll end up with like a bundle of people at the bottom of the treadmills which would be quite entertaining as well but for you have you, have you tried maintaining that pace for any prolonged period of time or have you played around with challenges like that I haven't really done a challenge like that, but if I did, I mean, I'd last maybe a mile. Like it's uh, his marathon pace is so insane. Yeah. And, and I mean, like 
I mean, my mile PR in high school, and that's pretty much the last time I ever prepared for a mile race yeah. or a 1600 meter was like a 439. So he's going faster than that for 26.2 miles. Crazy. Um, yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. So like you, you can do this math with a lot of these different races. I mean, the, the half marathon and the 5k world records are like this too, where like, if you go up to a track and try to replicate that pace for like one loop most people are already not going to be able to get yeah. there because mm. we're talking like in some case we're talking like mid to low 60 second splits for a track loop and uh you know that's that's flying around a track yeah. <laughs> for one loop so i'll do like i'll do short interval workouts though in training where i'm doing like say three minutes hard three minutes easy three minutes hard or like two minutes hard two minutes easy something in that that kind of degree and and i'll hit close to those paces sometimes for something like that but uh, you know, that is a, uh, a what we call like a VO2 max workout for me, whereas yeah. uh, for someone like Kipchoge, you know, that's his marathon pace. So like for perspective, their marathon pace, oftentimes for most people will fit between what you call like your aerobic threshold mm -hmm. and your lactate threshold. Pro marathoners can push that pace pretty close to the lactate threshold, but that's a fairly extreme example. Most people are going to be like somewhere between those uh vo2 max is another kind of gear higher than lactate threshold so it is it's insane what he's able to do at that and um i mean it's just a testament too of uh hard work discipline and consistency and knowing his body knowing mm -hmm. what he needs to do and trusting it and then going out and and doing it right time and time again which is i think been the the theme with him in the marathon is it's it's not even just one performance at this point. It's yeah. many performances and that's what makes him great or what I would yeah. consider the greatest marathoner. You could probably make an argument that Bekele is just as talented of a marathoner as him. I mean, he's run two, within two seconds of uh, Kipchoge's world record, yeah. but he's had been plagued with injuries throughout his career, which is something that Kipchoge's managed to avoid. So I think that maybe plays a big role into why he's the one on top yeah. right now. He just looks so efficient when he runs as well. And I guess that's the, mm. the beauty of, of what he's doing. And, you, you often see year on year these feats being achieved and the, the thing that's interesting is like where do these human limitations lie it just seems like the standard and the ball just keeps getting higher and higher and higher year year on year and you see i've seen a couple of places some people have argued that we could see the marathon pace even drop like around the 145s or even the the 140s which honestly just fucking blows my mind like where where, <laughs> where do you think that the, the human kind of limitations lie where do you think we'll see those those times pushed to in the in the in the near or the distant future yeah it's a good question i think uh i think getting under 150 is probably like an on paper estimate based on some physiological adaptations but then to actually do it is a whole nother story. So like, there's a lot of like other factors. I mean, there's probably factors we can't even know about that yeah. are playing into role here. Um, I mean, we see that in ultra running all the time is there's so many variables that we just don't know about, or we know they're there, but we don't know how to really optimize them. So it's like, at what point do you just, uh, you know, not really like overthink too many things and just yeah. go out there and run the, run the race. But uh, with a marathon, it's, it's tough because I mean, we have like, technology components too where it's like we've seen a lot of records fall in the last few years because of shoe technology i mean there's been some human development i'm sure along the way as well but you know you get a you know a technological product that is kind of similar to like the steel frame bike going to the carbon frame bike kind of yeah. the scenario and or this we saw it in speed skating they they speed skating and, and uh 
swimming as well. They had those uh, clap skates back uh, yeah. years ago. I think those, they can't use those anymore. I'm pretty sure, but um, swimming suits too. They had that speed suit for a while where all the records were yeah, getting broken and they regulated it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It got banned yeah. So running. Yeah. You know, when, when all that stuff happened, I always thought like, well, good thing I'm in running, you know, that's the sport where it's just basically like human powered locomotion. There's really not that much you can change, but then now we are here with a piece of, yeah. essentially it's a midsole <laughs> foam that is lighter and more responsive. So the energy you would have lost into that foam is now kind of producing a, uh, a greater return. So you see estimates of like two to 8% performance increase from, from those. And and so, I mean, we see like uh, marathon times, like essentially all road race, track race type yeah. settings in that thing are going to come down or have come down partly due to that. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, how do you, how do you like figure that into the equation? Mm -hmm. So it's like, if, if let, let's say like you had someone like Kipchoge, who's already, you know, a low, like a, a sub two hour on a, in a, in a, uh, a setting that's not kind of like a, a typical event. Uh, but basically a two flat marathoner, uh, you know, how much of a performance does he get from those shoes versus a different one? And yeah. if there's another technological innovation that gives another bench, so how much more does that push down? Like the guy behind him, because chances are, it'll be someone else that gets yeah. to experience any in more innovations versus his career. And, and, you know, then maybe we are talking something like that, like a, a 150 marathon, but it's, it's, it's crazy pacing and, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think uh, either no matter how you look at it, it's it's uh, it's, it's just some world class performances by by those guys and gals running their the marathon world class for events these days. Yeah, definitely. Just to touch on something now, this is a question that I've been burning to ask you as well. I've not been there yet, but the pain cave, and <laughs> we well we've listened to loads of podcasts like Knit Bear, Courtney. And the way Courtney Dullwater talks about she enters this pain cave and wants to dig and dive deeper into it. And there's this whole mm -hmm. notion that people want to reach it to see if they can push through, which is, is super fascinating. And it's obviously different for every single person where they reach it, how they feel. What is your experience when you're doing these 50, 100 mile races at the pace you run as well? Have you experienced like extreme... I guess, levels of pain. Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, there's like a, probably a bit of a, an experience where it gets bad. And then your mind kind of goes to this spot where it's like, well, if it's bad now, and I keep doing this, this, this activity, it's clearly going to get worse, probably or in a linear fashion, right? You're like, how can like two more miles make this better? It's going to definitely make it worse. So you get this, like, this thought process of, how can I bear more if I'm already struggling now? And I think what, what ends up happening is you get someone like Courtney DeWalter who, uh, or Nick, who are going to be like, they're looking for that. They're seeking it out. They're like, I want to get to that point so that I can prove to myself or whomever that I can push through that and really, really see what I'm capable of. And I think when you get yourself motivated enough to really want to find out what you're capable of or how hard you can push yourself. That's when you're able to kind of dig deeper into that pain cave. And then you're always going to have examples of times where like you got deep into the pain cave, but you're just like enough. And, uh, yeah. you know, you slow down and you just don't have it that day. And I think that's a lot of times, I mean, there's a lot of things, like we said before, a lot of variables, like from nutrition to proper pacing, hydration, heat management, if that's a variable in the event. 
uh, and all sorts of other things. But I mean, the mental component is huge. So, uh, you know, there's definitely like races where uh, I could have kind of stopped digging into the pain cave and had a worse performance. And there's certainly races where I probably could have been mentally stronger and dug deeper into the pain cave, but didn't for whatever reason on that day. And uh, yeah, it's just an interesting component to the race. But what I like to tell people about it is like, it's the, the goofy thing about hundred miling and any probably even marathoning to a degree too, is like, it can get bad and get better. So (laughs) you got to think of, you got to know that. And it's tough for people. I think the first time, because they don't know that. So for them, it's just all this new experience. Like you're at mile 70 and for all, you know, mile 80 is going to be that much worse. Mile nine is going to be that much worse yet. And mile hundred, you're going to be dying. Like the, you know, that is easy to think that way. But when you have an experience where you push through that and say you're seven miles further along and now you feel better than you had all day, it's just such a weird kind of thing. And you're, it doesn't make sense. Cause it's like I said before, how did continuing to do the activity that got me there in the first place now make me feel better? Yeah. <laughs> like, what did I do differently or what changed? Mm-hmm. So it is a, it's a, it's a weird play on your emotions. And I think that's what's the drives to the hundred mile is you do literally get all of those emotions in a very relatively comp- compact uh, time period. Uh, there's a guy uh, named Billy Yang who did a documentary called uh, life in a day. And it was documenting a Western States 100 and the whole premise of the documentary is essentially is like you start this hundred mile race and over the course of this like roughly 24 hour time period you're going to experience a lifetime of emotions so it's like you can experience a lifetime of emotions in one day and i think that's a draw for people people want to want to see that they want to test that they want to get that experience and um you know it's kind of like watching a movie right like a movie takes hundreds of thousands of hours to make but when it's up on the screen it's an hour and a half to two hours long it's like kind of like that that takes sort of perspective yeah i can see that fascination with really wanting to push outside those where those barriers are being and challenge yourself outside the box but at the same time just like you are fucking just crazy like and then you see some of these people and you expect them to be nuts or wild but then they're more like silent assassins like you've got people like Courtney, Nick Bear are pushing for those. And you've got people like Goggins as well, which is just like a, another, another <laughs> level another of crazy. Level. He's, yeah. 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 He, he's just crazy pushing through those barriers. Have you, have you sort of ran through any races or any times where you've had to push or run long distances whilst injured? Because we had a guy from the UK, I'm not sure if you've, you've heard of him before, but his name's Nick Butterrun or Nick Buttermore, he's known as. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, we had him on the podcast last year. And like he's done a, he was doing a marathon in every country, and then he ran around the the border of the UK, it. and he was saying like he he ran with like some stress fra- fractures in his shins, he ran with splints, he ran with like, was it a torn Achilles? Yeah, he had torn most muscles in his legs, yeah. and he said by the end of it, he was basically walking every day, not even being yeah. able to mm. run. But it was just it was just pushing through because that perseverance of like the mindset getting through him. I know. In, the, in that respect, it was because he challenged himself to do something. And again, he was getting into that psychological, uh, tapping into that psychological element that was pushing him through because he'd set himself a challenge. It wasn't just like, right, here's a race, I need to finish it. Have you have you sort of came across any challenge like that where you've had to deep, dig, just dig in, even though you've known you've done something during a race? 
Yeah, from an injury standpoint, I've been pretty fortunate. Like a lot of my goal races or A races, I haven't really had any injury issues with them. Mm -hmm. I've had very few injuries actually in general, which has been, uh, you know, something I'm very fortunate with. But the ones I have had have happened in training. And then it's like, at that point, you know, that's your opportunity to remedy the situation versus mm -hmm. to try to push through it because you just... You know, in a race, if it's really important enough to to get to the finish line, I think it's probably worth punting that that injury, so to speak, down the road and dealing with it after. But if you get it like during a buildup for a race, if you try to like punt it down the road, chances are you're going to like just end up worse off and yeah. end up missing more things. So you kind of have to bite that bullet, so to speak, in that scenario. Um, I mean, I've had races where I've dropped out because of an injury, but it wasn't really like a, a race where I was like targeting for like my big buildup. So it was more like if I want to preserve the race I'm actually building up for right now, I need to like limit the damage here. So, um, I mean, you do things like, you know, like a circumnavigation of the UK, that sort of thing. It's like, that's kind of a project where once that thing starts, there's so much that goes into that. I'm sure logistically mm -hmm. and preparatory wise and financially that like, you're going to try to find a way to get it done regardless of whatever injury comes in something like that. You may have to even go in, assuming you're going to hurt yourself in some shape or form and, and then have to manage it along the way uh, in order to get through it just in general. So I think you can maybe have a little bit of a different mindset when you start getting into those really long yeah. kind of cross track multi-day type of stuff as well. And, and that kind of thing, but yeah, I mean, I might be a boring subject for that particular thing. I haven't <laughs> drugged my leg across too many finish lines. Yeah. I suppose that's a good thing, though. And again, <laughs> we, we spoke about the form. We spoke to a couple of other people about, and it'd be interesting to get your take on it because I think even speaking to runners who have had the gate tested and had the running techniques perfected and been experienced runners, like all runners tend to get injured at some point, and mm -hmm. it can be pretty much unavoidable, no matter how good of a runner you may be. Yeah, it's usually a question of like when, not if. Yeah. Uh, if you do it long enough, you'll have something that pops up. And and to be fair, I think like if if you run for like forty years and never get an injury, like you may have not pushed yourself very hard. <laughs> I don't want to say <laughs> yeah, that's so something hard. that there's got there's definitely somebody out there who's just like super like like uh, resistant to injury or it literally does everything the right way and and doesn't make the mistake, but. Uh, when you get to the point where I think you're really challenging yourself, there's like this, the, the, you're going to probably push the limits a little bit, or you're going to walk up to that line often enough where there's going to be a point where you step across it on accident. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for like, for me, for example, I have to be like really mindful when I'm doing short interval stuff, speed work. Uh, if I start getting too aggressive with that too early on or change it, change the environment in which I'm doing it too drastically, that's usually what'll catch me in a lot of cases mm -hmm. uh when i have gotten injured or another one is like sleep uh i find like if i have little like these aren't major injuries typically but like small little things creep up like oh my my, my knee is sore and it's going to take a couple days to settle yeah. down or something like that i i feel like those always end up flaring up if after i've had like a couple nights where i got less sleep than i needed to for whatever reason maybe i'm traveling or something like that and tried to like push through training in order to kind of stay on course so to speak but uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think what, when you've been running long enough, you usually start to recognize where your strengths and weaknesses are. And like, there's things you can do to address the weaknesses. Uh, and then there's ways you can just structure your own programming at an individual level to make sure that you're not necessarily like getting too risky with the things that you're more injury prone for. And then like, take me, for example, I can typically do tons of long runs without 
a whole lot of wear and tear from an injury standpoint. It just hasn't been a type of activity that I've gotten a lot of injuries from historically. So like, I know I can take a few more risks probably when I'm building up my long run versus what maybe some other runner who's on the opposite of the spectrum as I am might have to be a little more mindful about how many of those they do, but they can go and bang out short intervals all day long if they wanted to and, and, and bounce back with, with not too much issue. So um, it's an interesting thing. And I don't think there's necessarily like any one thing that causes all runners to eventually get injured, but uh, there's, there's enough going on within the whole the whole approach that chances are you're going to probably make a mistake at some point and, and have to deal with it in some shape or form if you're really pushing yourself to the limit. Yeah, 100%. With your running, because I know you're a running coach and you're a phenomenal running coach, and we've listened to a few podcasts where you're talking about, I guess, optimal running technique and heel striking and foot position and things like that. Would you just be able to touch on that a little bit in terms of, I guess, it's obviously different for every single person. Like I will run differently to Ben, Ben will run differently to mm-hmm. you and it what it's what works. But I guess like what is actually... It's like the forbidden the term, optimal. isn't it? Everyone hears yeah, heel striking, it's like, no, bad. Yeah, it's just yeah. super interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. And I think where it really ends up... Uh, I mean, the, the, the nuance is where I think you, uh, you start to answer some of the questions. And is a, is heel striking, midfoot striking, or forefoot striking? None of these are like inherently good or bad. I think it really what it comes down to is first you're going to be working with your own mechanics and own variances. Like you know, some folks have like one leg slightly longer than the other, and these discrepancies they're going to put them in a position where their form maybe is going to look a little different than someone else's, and it doesn't necessarily mean that their form is less efficient for their person it could be less efficient on paper for someone who is like biologically, like very like similar from one side to the next, Mm -hmm. or when you paste that onto a different person, who's got a different set of circumstances, really what you're looking for though, is in, in a lot of cases, you want your foot plant to be coming down underneath your bent knee. So you're in a situation where like you want to bear that weight, the way your body is intended to absorb it. So those impact forces are distributed along the way that your body's able to tolerate them best. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about heel striking, the reason why that one gets a lot of, a lot of heat is because typically when someone's overstriding, that's going to promote a heel strike. So, so sorry, it's that, really just to pause you there as well. Do you mind just explaining to people what heel striking is just for, in case people sure. don't know? So, yeah. So if you look at like the bottom of your foot or you take a shoe and turn it upside down, if you've been, if you did any amount of running in that shoe, you can probably see some wear patterns under there. That's going to show kind of where your body's bearing the weight and pushing off the most. So like a heel strike is going to be someone who kind of plants their weight down on the back half of their foot. And that can come in a variety of ranges. Like you can have someone who's like really a heel striker and they're what I would call like a check mark stance where their toes are pointing up and their heels planting down and they're almost just hammering that heel into the ground. Uh, so that's, that would be like a severe heel strike. Then you get someone who's kind of got more of a mild heel strike where it's technically in the back half of the foot, but it's kind of more up along the side and pushed up in front of the heel a little bit where the wear pattern won't be on the very back of the shoe might be on kind of the back half on the side. And that person is uh, still technically a heel striker, but they're probably less likely overstriding like that first person. Uh, and that's what you really want to avoid is overstriding because like overstriding is what's going to pull your foot out in front of that bent knee. It's going to cause that plant to be in a way where you're, you're bearing your weight with your knee almost locked. So those impact forces are going to be hitting your leg in a way where your leg is slanted and not as capable of 
tolerating those forces because those impact forces are going to be relative are going to be the same. Like the force is there. It's just, where do you distribute it? So if you're reaching out way in front of you, those forces are going to get distributed into like the knees and the hips in a way you don't necessarily want them to. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you, if you're coming down underneath your bent knee though, then it's going to like your, your legs are going to collapse and your body's going to like absorb that impact the way it's supposed to. And then you're going to feed that back into your next gate. So uh, really when you're looking, like what I like to do for myself and other folks who are curious is if you can get a video of yourself running from the side, you can kind of see where your foot is coming down in relation to where your knee is bending. If you notice that foot is coming out in front of that knee, that's probably something you want to try to correct. If it's coming under the bent knee, I'm much less concerned if like they're a supinator, like up on their forefoot, striking on the outside of their forefoot versus someone who's pronating kind of along their midfoot or even near the back half of their foot. Mm -hmm. As long as it's under bent knee, you know, I'm not going to probably try to recommend they change anything unless they have issues that are like that, that like a physical therapist saying you need to address this, or you're going to end up getting an injury down the road or something like that. But I mean, you see people who, you know, heel midfoot, forefoot strike with form that's good relative to their own mechanics and their own, their unique form. Uh, and that I think you want to be careful changing because you probably see more injuries from people who are, who think they're doing something wrong and actually fine because their particular form just doesn't match the picture perfect form that we see on posters. And with a lot of the kind of elite marathoners out yeah. there, literally they. Do look, <laughs> yeah, they're floating across the road. It's like you, they hardly even look like they're running. And, uh, yeah. So I think you have to be kind of careful about making corrections that don't need to be made, especially when you're looking at the individual level. Uh, I think cadence is another thing that you can correct a lot of issues with if you, you check that. So, Oftentimes, if someone's cadence, which is just the number of times your feet are striking the ground in a minute. So like one way people will do to calculate that is they'll be running and you'll just count how many times like your right foot strikes the ground in 20 seconds. If you take that number, multiply it by six, that's going to give you both foot strikes within a minute or 60 seconds. So then you can get your number. Most runners are going to be like, you know, like a 170 to 190 range is going to be a pretty solid cadence to target. There's going to be a variance even within a single runner based on how fast they're running. If you're running faster, your cadence is likely going to be a little higher. If you're doing like a really easy recovery run, your cadence is probably going to be lower. So you'll have a range of somewhere around 20 steps per minute, something like that, where from your slow runs to your fast runs. But when I see folks kind of dipping down under say like 160 uh, steps per minute, that's where it's a pretty good indication that they're likely overstriding. Because when you think about it, overstriding, you are covering more ground per step but you're not necessarily going faster. What you're doing is you're lengthening your stride and then taking less of them. So you're pushing that foot out in front of you. You're covering more ground. You're taking less steps. So that less steps shows up in that equation. So that's kind of maybe warning sign one to check that kind of side camera angle and find out, okay, am I striking out in front of my bent knee? If you are, then a good thing to do is to kind of inch that cadence up. You don't necessarily want to go from like, say 150 up to 180 the next day, because there's going to be some mechanical changes that you're not used to that you're going to take on. So you might want to say like, okay, if my cadence is in the low 150s right now, I'm going to work for like a week or two, getting it up into the low 160s. Then I'm going to work for a week or two, getting up to the 170s. And then from there, you can, you're probably in a good enough spot. Once you start seeing that foot come down on a bent knee, where you can just uh, dial in what feels most comfortable to you and, and isn't generating uh, any like weird sorenesses or aches and pains that you maybe are getting from the overstriding and stuff like that. 
Um, there's some other things you can do too. Like I think arm swing is an interesting one. A lot of times people will think like arm swing as in like swing forward, swing back. What I like to tell people is you really want your arms to be relatively relaxed. You want to be like kind of like in a good posture. Like I say, like stand tall and proud. Like it feels awkward at first, but that's going to kind of push your chest out. And it's going to kind of prop your arms back a little bit because really when you're running, you want to pop your arms back and then just like let them fall forward. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, you're trying to drive forward momentum not backward momentum. So swinging your arm forward is actually moving your body in the opposite direction that you wanted to go because that's pushing your core back. So popping your arm back pushes your core forward the direction you want to go, letting it fall forward limits the amount of like negative forces going that way. And then you get a little bit more of a relaxed arm swing than what I think a lot of people try to do if they try to force it. So uh, that's one thing that can help with that too. That's the one that we sometimes Uh, struggle with is that, is that kind of like posture for the upper body and I sometimes mm-hmm. go too much the other way where like my arms like T-Rex because I'm just so floppy with my arms because my biceps are quite heavy. It's like I glue them to my side a little bit yeah. and then uh-huh. you're sometimes quite upright and it's kind of getting yeah. that balance with, because you hear different messages of like being too upright to where you're almost marching and then to being lent over to where you're almost like Quasimodo. So mm-hmm. where, where do you think like the perfect balance is between, because I know some people t- and you've talked about before, it's like, it's kind of a balance between almost falling forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think you want to think of it as kind of like falling forward and catching yourself. So it's like a slight forward lean. And there's one thing I like to do to kind of practice this is I'll stand like with good posture, stand up straight, shoulders back, chest out kind of. And then I'll just like rock back and forth really slowly, not enough to feel like I'm going to tip over. I'll just get comfortable doing that. And then once I get comfortable doing that, I'll let myself rock forward and not stop myself. And I just wait until I get that sensation of like, oh, I'm going to tip forward. And once I get that sensation, that's kind of the sign just to lift your foot up and then catch yourself. And you just kind of repeat that process. And that's kind of what you want to think about Mm -hmm. in terms of like how to position your body when running is that kind of slight forward lean, which is going to happen by like getting to that point where like you're not quite comfortable anymore or you're fighting to hold yourself up and that's the, the kind of sign to step forward and I think if you you practice that if as like a drill or a technique you kind of put yourself in that position and then you just start to kind of do it a little more intuitively over time. Mm-hmm. I think that's super interesting because as Ben said we're quite built like muscly and yeah. a lot of the time when I run I do feel quite uptight and I get self-conscious that people are looking at me and I've had my gait tested and all of that. And it's actually for my frame, like in particular, cause I'm quite broad and like muscly on top. It's, it's fine for me, which is what I keep telling myself and not to compare to like the perfect runner because that will never be me. I, I just won't be able to run in the most perfect, probably optimum way as a runner should run. But the way that I run at the moment I'm dealing with an injury, but I, it's not been triggered. So I think that's just important to know, mm. isn't it? That it's like okay to mm. not have the most perfect. Well, everyone, everyone looks you different, look don't they? Everyone built. looks different running as well. I just yeah. so many different running techniques. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is interesting too, because like uh, we were talking about Mark Bell before, and you know, Mark, <laughs> I love Mark. Have you seen just, Have you seen the video that awesome. the runner he puts up? And again. Not taking yeah. not taking anything away from Mark. Is this because, the one where he was like, yeah, because we want to get Mark yeah. on the podcast to chat about his half marathon stuff as well. But he's because he's a, obviously a big dude as well. He has a slightly different run to the to the norm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, and I, we were we were talking about that because we were looking at his form, and I mean, Mark actually has pretty decent form um, mm-hmm. in terms of like where he's loading his impact forces yeah. and stuff like that. But I mean, he's two hundred fifty pounds of solid muscle, exactly. so like, he's just gonna <laughs> yeah. look different running. You go, like, you go carry all that, haven't you? So yeah, what's that? You've got to carry all that weight. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. So I mean, you think about it, it's like you're looking. We're looking at these like these professional marathoners who are like 130 pounds dripping wet, and you get Mark Bell who's twice their size. <laughs> and so it's just going to look a little different. You know, it's going to his his arms are as big as their legs in most cases, so like he's going to look a little different out there. Um, you know, you can hide a, a noodle arm a lot easier than you can hide him his biceps and stuff. But uh, but yeah, I mean Mark's a perfect example because uh, he is you know was world class power lifter, yeah. uh, bodybuilder. I mean he's done it all on that side of the spectrum. And uh, Mark's not the kind of guy who's just going to always lean into what he's good at. He wants to challenge himself. So he's like, well, what am I probably the worst at? Or what can I, what's a weakness of mine and how do I make it stronger? So he's, I mean, he's been going, he's been leaning into this uh, kind of running type type thing for quite some time. Now he started a program where uh, it was just like a walking program. He and his brother, Chris actually did it. I think to help, it was kind of like a gog, almost like maybe a little slightly friendlier Goggins version mm-hmm. of, a, of a motivation thing. Whereas like, you know, Goggins story is like, you know, my first day, it's like, I just got around the block and I failed the first time. And I mean, that's a great message because people look at what Goggins is doing now and they're like, wow, I wish I could do that. And then it's like, well, Goggins like, you can do that. I started out, you know, you know, chugging a milkshake and barely making it around the block. And, you know, Mark and Chris, what they did is they're like, they were working with some folks who were just had no history of exercise not really very uh, dialed into their nutrition. He's like, well, you're not hopeless. You just need to start. And starting might just be like this 10 minute walk in the evening. So he started this like walk group, I think out of super training gym and people would meet up and walk with them uh, during the day at some points. That's cool. Or in the evenings. Yeah. And then that kind of like got him interested in running and that sort of stuff. And uh, he ended, he actually walked a 50 miler a couple months ago. Really? If, you, if you heard wow. about that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You got, I got a, a message from him one day. He's like, I think I'm going to try to walk 50 miles and he's asking questions about it and stuff like that so uh, i was excited when he decided to jump in that half marathon though yeah it was cool and again obviously those kind of two worlds don't really align together as in you're not going to be like the next powerlifter or bodybuilder and be the next Mm -hmm. marathon runner or win the london marathon or whatever but obviously being one of the one of the two and what we were kind of speaking about before hypothetically and it was a question that i wanted to ask you like how would you envision the like the perfect hybrid athlete being for like doing both what would that what would that look like for to you it's a good question like uh yeah i think i mean you get some examples of that i mean you have i mean the david goggins is probably a great example of that he had like the pull-up record for a while yes. and now he's out here running 240 mile races too so like i think it was he so, certainly can i think it was was it cameron haynes son who beat his cam haynes yeah, is yeah. the other guy i was gonna say I think he's like that you know can't his son yeah beat his the son, record didn't he beat the pull-up record mm-hmm. yeah so I mean, Goggins is probably just doing a little too much running. If you would have just focused on that pull-up bar, you still have. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's just it, though. It's like you know, Mark will never run 100 miles as fast as me. Just like I'll never bench press yeah. as much as Mark can probably do with one arm. So, like the there is like some limitations that we have on ourselves biologically and physically speaking. But um, it doesn't mean we can't improve ourselves or find our own limit within that. And I think that's where you get these interesting guys like Cam Haynes and. David Goggins, who 
they have their goals, their life goals and what they want to do. And that they found ways to fit like both weightlifting and long distance running and all these other things into it in order Mm -hmm. to make themselves just like well-rounded people and able to participate in a variety of things versus being so good at one thing that you're essentially useless at the other. Yeah. That's, I mean, another great example is, is Nick Bear as well. And I think, did you work mm-hmm. with yep. Nick on some of his running? Yeah. Um, we spoke about before, like it can also be one of those things where like, depending on what you've got on, if, if the goal is to be more Jack for a holiday, you've got a weightlifting comp or whatever it may be is to just to slightly turn the dial more in that direction. If you've got maybe a race or an event or something coming up, it just turn the volume up in training with running a little bit. But what did, what did you mainly work on with Nick when you guys were working together? Because we're, we're big, big fans of, of, of both of you guys as well. Mm-hmm. First, I'll say Nick. So I've coached hundreds, if not thousands of people at this point. And it's, uh, you know, like I'll do these personalized plans where we'll, I'll do it a few different ways depending on the person's preference. But sometimes I'll build the whole plan out as like, this is how I envision this happening on paper between now and your race. But we are going to adjust things along the way as we see fit. So like, you're going to have a workout that either goes really good relative to what we expect it to be or really bad. And we're going to make adjustments. You're going to miss a day because of something, something's going to come up and we're going to rearrange your schedule. We're going to adjust things and we're going to adapt this plan as it goes forward. Nick is the first and only person I've ever had that I wrote that plan out. I think it was his was like maybe 18 or 19 weeks from when we started where we didn't change a single workout the entire time. <laughs> he wow. just did each one of them. And I mean, that's just kind of like, I think that's just the way, I mean, you get these different personalities and, and Nick is kind of the, you know, like I have like this time during the day to do this. If I don't do it now, I don't get to do it. Yeah. I want to do this. This is a goal of mine. If it wasn't a goal of mine, I wouldn't be wasting my time doing it because he's got counsels of other things he could be focusing mm-hmm. his energy on. So for him, I think he's looking at it as like, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. And I'm going to follow the, the, the program. And that's kind of how, how it went for him. But the way we structured his plan was actually, uh, it was, uh, we, we, since he was doing a hundred mile race and it was runnable terrain, uh, what we did is we focused kind of, he had a big aerobic foundation already. He was coming off of, uh, the Leadville hundred mile earlier or mid or mid to late last year. And I mean, he wasn't not running in the interim either. So it's like, there was like, there was no reason for me to start throwing like four or five hour long runs at him out the gate to start with. What we wanted to do is we wanted to recuperate some speed um, by doing some short intervals. So what that's going to do is use like this window of kind of like your aerobic intensity. And we kind of want to shift that whole framework up or essentially the only way to look at it is like raise the ceiling on his potential there. And we're going to do that from the top early because it's the least specific type of uh, activity relative to race pace. He's running hundred miles in roughly 19 hours. So whatever pace he's running for, like say a two or three minute interval is going to be drastically faster than his race pace. So we address that first. It's important, but it's not race pace specific. So then once we kind of spend about four to six weeks kind of developing that, we moved on to, to targeting what I would call like a long interval or tempo run. Uh, you can call like a lactate threshold intensity, functional threshold power, it's essentially the pace you can tolerate for 45 to 60 minutes all out if you were to go to like a race day setting. Yeah. So now we start kind of spending some time developing that, which is still much faster than his hundred mile race pace, but slower than those short intervals. So we're getting closer to race specific. Again, we're kind of targeting least specific to most specific. So then we kind of get through that. And then with that last part of the plan, this is where we're like, say six weeks, six to eight weeks out from the race. Now we're looking at 
a scenario where it's time to really start focusing on doing the things he's going to need when he's out there at the Rocky Raccoon hundred running those, uh, I think they're 20 or 25 mile loops. It, it used to be five 20 mile loops. I think it might be four 25s now, yeah, I think it's but uh, yeah. So, uh, so then we're just like, okay, I, I want you to get as close to race environment as you can get uh, which was fairly easy for him. He lives North of Austin. So he's got plenty of kind of rolling Hills and flat ro- running environments to train on, which is essentially what the Rocky raccoon course is. And there's a lot of routes on there. That'd be the one thing that you'd have to kind of get out on the course to really practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just like now we're now we're going to shift a lot of that training load towards doing back-to-back long runs. So rather than hitting a couple interval sessions or an interval session and tempo run during the week and having kind of a moderately long, long run on the weekend, now we're almost eliminating that speed work altogether, but we're pushing like maybe a four or five hour run on a Saturday and then following that up with another one on Sunday. So he's really practicing exactly the pace, the intensity, the specifics he's going to do on race day. That allows him to also practice things like fueling and hydration needs. He can dial that in and figure out, well, how much can I consume in an hour before I start getting a stomach issue? How much water and electrolytes do I need to feel like I'm staying hydrated and start getting these ballpark numbers in place and then creating options around them. So on race day, if things do deviate from his original plan, he's got something to de- something to kind of lean yeah. back into or, or specifically focus on versus uh, having to play guesswork at the aid stations, which is where the wheels oftentimes yeah. come off <laughs> when you start doing it. Can't wait for that. Yeah, you got old. Got old. <laughs> so you, you, briefly, you briefly touched on as well just before about nutrition. And I suppose you, you kind of become that guy who's been a big advocate and known for your stance with keto and, and how you've used that to optimize your performance during a lot of your running. Because I know, I think Mark Bell does similar. I think he does carnival, mm-hmm. which... I've tried carnival before and it just, it didn't end well from, from, from my relationship with the toilet, to be honest. Um, so, so it didn't last long. And I think for a lot of people within the sort of mainstream fitness industry of where we reside a lot of time, keto isn't always looked as, as optimal for, for weightlifters and, and gym goers. But I know that you've talked quite often about it in running and how it's helped you combat, is it bonk as well? Can you just give a bit of like an insight, Zach, into like what got you into keto and and how it's helped you, and and also like what what exactly Bonk is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm uh, happy to go through all of it. I have one quick question: when uh, for like your guys' side, when you see folks in kind of the bodybuilding community, yeah. when they do keto, are they referring to keto kind of loosely as like I eat much fewer carbs than I do fats and protein, or is it like very strict keto of like I'm not going over 50 grams of carbohydrate? I think it's quite strict. I think in bodybuilding when they refer to it. In in the bodybuilding world, it'd be quite strict, but then you'll also get kind of the mainstream fitness, which will be like, Oh, I'll try keto for two weeks because my next door neighbor told me to do it and but I'll still but I'll still (laughs) go I'll still go out and get pissed on the weekend and then Mm -hmm. never reach ketosis because it just yeah they don't really understand it. So there's two different camps really. Yeah, because I'd be curious, um, because I I would call myself, at least on paper, I'm probably low carb versus keto. Uh, When you look at kind of blood uh, ketone levels, like millimoles, you could make an argument I'm following a ketogenic diet. And I think that's lifestyle driven as much as it is nutritionally driven uh, in my case. And so I'd be, I'd wonder if like within the, the bodybuilding community, if you'd have someone who is like maybe a little more loose with a carb restriction and say, I'm going to go 20, 25% carbohydrate, 
50 to 60% fat and the rest protein, if they would see some of the issues they get with strict keto clear up, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not. I, 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 it could be something where it's just kind of like muddling in the middle ground and you're like, you're, you're neither great nor terrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so where it works, I think for me is for one, the race I'm training for a hundred miles long. So, um, you know, at my best, I'm out there for over 11 hours. And that's just a long enough time frame where the intensity has to come down to somewhere around like my aerobic threshold, which for me, it's like at that point, it's like once I know race intensity, I mean, I can go in and get a test done that confirms like how much carbs and fats I'm burning at various intensities and just dial in a nutrition strategy to supplement that physiological state. Um, the question then becomes, can you actually execute the carb consumption side of that equation? So if I want to, I think the way I like to play, say it is like, no matter who you are, whether you're high carb, low carb, strict keto, moderate carb, vegan, carnivore, whatever it is you are, when you're on the starting line at a hundred mile race, your goal nutritionally is to defend muscle glycogen. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I think the research isn't super strong here, but the suspicion is that, when you get around 40% muscle glycogen, you start to kind of have this experience where your body starts increasing your perceived effort at a given pace. So like, if I'm just out there churning out, say like 640, 650 minute miles on a track, and I hit that 40% glycogen store mark, my body's going to make that same pace feel more difficult, which over time is going to wear down on my mind. You know, it's going to like, I'm probably going to slow down in response to that. And that's like your body's way of saying, Hey, we're going to defend the remaining glycogen here because there's more important reasons for it than you getting around this track fast. So you want to defend that. You want to stay away from that line. And it, you know, some folks who are high carb, they may need to hit target up to say 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour in order to defend that properly and avoid hitting that spot. You take someone like myself who eats much fewer carbohydrates in my normal day-to-day life that number comes down quite a bit. So for me, like I'm hitting maybe 30 to 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour. And that allows me to stay on top of that. I don't, when I'm, when nutrition is going in well, when my pacing is right, when I'm fit and things are working the way they are supposed to, like they were at the dome in 2019, Mm -hmm. I run faster at the end than I do in the beginning. So that's a fairly clear indication that I'm still readily tapping into my muscle glycogen Mm -hmm. stores uh, when I need to. Um, And then it just becomes a personal question. I think, I, I think like if there's going to be people who are comfortable saying, Hey, I'm going to train myself up to being able to tolerate the ingestion of, I uh, say 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrate. I think that's where the recommendations are yeah. for a moderate carbohydrate athlete at the moment. So, you know, if they can do that and they have success with that, I don't really see a big issue with it. Uh, I'm not going to talk them off of that approach, but if someone comes to me and they say, all right, I tried this and even when I go about 50 grams, it's just like, you know, a coin flip as to whether I end up in the porter potty as often as I am on the trail or the track. Uh, you know, I'm losing like minutes, if not hours to like non to stoppages due to digestive issues and things like that. Uh, and we put them on a lower carb diet and now all of a sudden they can get the same, they can defend their glycogen as easily on say 30 to 40 grams as they were able to on 50 to 70 grams now they don't have to deal with that digestive equation as much as they did in the, in the past. So for that person, that might be the path forward. Um, and, and there's going to be people who can probably do it both ways. Just fine. A lot of people probably can, if they spend enough time kind of working on one or the other. So then it just kind of becomes like preference. It's like, 
you know, I'll have uh, the one that I always like, I always like laugh at a little bit is when they say, um, you know, someone has like terrible issues with their gut historically. And they're like, well, let's train your gut. It's like, you can train your gut, but the question I always have is how much can you train your gut from what, from where, what spot you are? Let's, let's say in theory you, that everyone can train their gut. Some people may not want to train their gut. Mm-hmm. Like training your gut requires you to be eating the foods you're going to be eating on race day on a very frequent basis, oftentimes during most of your quality sessions, if not all of them. Um, and if you want to do that, if that works for you, I don't see a problem with that, but there's plenty of people I see them every day. Um, who don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they, they don't want that lifestyle. They don't want that framework instilled in their routine for when they no longer run the way they're running now. And I think those are all very, very good reasons to maybe not want to do that. And so when someone comes to me and they say like, all right, that this, this is the way I, I want to go about this. I'm going to work with them in that capacity uh, because it is something where when we're getting into like hundred mile races, like it's uh we're extrapolating research forward for the most part we're not really having a lot of like good quality studies that are indicating like oh this food group or this type of fueling works great for 100 miles like head and shoulders above the next yeah it's not very clear at all so we're extrapolating forward like like studies from from uh events that are much shorter much higher intensity and that doesn't mean they're worthless. They are worth considering because, I mean, you do have components. Like I described the way that I prepared Nick for his 100 miler. There is intensity in that. Like there are yeah. times where you're going to go glycolytic. So there's going to be times where defending muscle glycogen and training in order to maximize your training is going to be something you have to consider. And that's likely going to come with some carbohydrate consumption. I think personally, when you're training for a hundred miler, you can do that with a low carb approach. You just might want to be a little more liberal with your carbohydrates during those, those higher intensity phases of training versus what you might do in that last block leading up where you're running a lot of slower miles, preparing for the race or in the off season, when you have a lot of flexibility to say, take on a strict ketogenic diet for a while and just see what that feels like and how your body actually operates under that context when the training equation isn't so heavy. And, and that's typically how I look at it. I think it's, I don't think we know nearly enough about ultra marathons and nutrition to be giving population level recommendations like wholesale absolute style. Uh, I do think working with a person at the individual level can oftentimes tease out what's going to likely work best for them. Uh, I a hundred percent appreciate that the majority of people that are coming even to me uh, are, have a much bigger history eating a moderate to high carbohydrate lifestyle. That just tends to be the types of food groups that happen when you eat without a whole lot of thought um, or even with thought. So uh, most people have a big history. I mean, that's how I got into it. I had, well, I think it was 2011 when I started low carb. So I would have been in my mid twenties. So I had a quarter of a century of moderate to high carbohydrate consumption going into that. So like my experience was moderate to high carbohydrate fueling and lifestyle. So like when someone has that background information of that and they have tried a variety of different things to try to fuel with that, then I think like you, it's, it's okay to keep working in that equation if they don't have any problems yeah. with it and it's working well. Um, but I don't think at the individual level, you know, if it's not working, well, let's not keep banging our heads against the wall either. Let's look for some changes. And if that happens to be through the nutrition angle, then, then, I mean, I see those folks on a, quite frequent basis where, you know, they, they improve because they switched their dietary protocols and, um, you know, we didn't change their training in any drastic way. So it's, uh, 
you know, I think it should be an option on the table for people to consider if they find themselves in a position to wanting to uh, kind of have that option available to them and try it out. Yeah, I think the, the important thing you touched on there was obviously the comparison that I made at the start, the challenges are very different for someone that's facing doing bodybuilding and someone that's facing doing an mm-hmm. ultra, those things are completely different world, worlds. And the other thing that you touched on, which I think is, is very important, it's it's what works for the individual. Like it, we're not telling people like, this is or this isn't working and that's the thing that when we coach is is very individual to to each person as well but then the third thing comes in is the need like for example general population there might not be a need for them to to even venture into that ketogenic diet or low carb it depends on like what you've got coming in because people are doing ultra marathon runners and people who are committing to those big events or even even bodybuilding show that they're going in in there with a different mindset to the everyday person who just lives a social lifestyle and want to kind of neaten things up a little bit so the need for them to do that is probably not there so that's why i think it's interesting mm-hmm. in some of the stuff that you've spoken about and and how it kind of is has helped your performance how, how it's helped a lot of people that you've you've worked with as well but the other thing on the i suppose again on the flip side to that is someone who has a de- definitely has a different mindset when it comes to eating nutrition and training i suppose you'd almost call it a laid back mindset is is, Cor- is Courtney unconventional, isn't it? Unconventional, would you call it? Courtney do what is kind of approach to nutrition mm-hmm. because you you hear her talk sometimes. She's like, yeah, I just got off the back of a race and I was like, beers, tacos, yeah. burritos, cheesecakes, of deers. <laughs> like, it's like she's just come off the back of like a. But she, a beer but ranch. she was doing it mid race as well. She yeah. was having these big. I couldn't think of anything worse than midway through a race to have like cheese quesadillas. Yeah. But yeah, she's. <laughs> That's super interesting. And she's actually said so many times she prefers to not be that dialed in with nutrition. And even mm-hmm. her training, she just goes off because she doesn't want to lose her enjoyment. Do you think someone like Courtney, if she was to dial in a little bit more with her nutrition, that she'd essentially be better than she already is? I mean, can you get much better? But yeah, I mean, I really think for what Courtney's doing, it really comes down to, is she getting enough? And is she hitting like her micronutrient mm-hmm. needs? So the funny thing is Courtney trains at a high level, races at a high level. So she's probably eating at least twice as much as what she would be if she was just sitting around all day. Yeah, yeah. Desk job. So for her to get her micronutrient needs pretty easy, like she can literally probably junk half the time. And as long as the other half of her diet is fairly well dialed in, she's going to hit her micronutrient levels, she's going to hit her protein recommendations. And then as long as she's getting enough, I don't really see a huge problem. So for her, like, if and and then along the lines, like she also obviously wants to race well. So as long as she's not getting digestive issues, which from what I can tell, she doesn't have an issue with that. I think she's maybe reported that at, at one race that I've seen, and she's done probably hundreds of them at this point. So like, it's clearly what she's doing is working for her. So like, I don't know why, why she would change it, to be honest. I mean, I think everyone could probably clean up something, but then it comes down to that thing is like, is hundred percent compliance when it comes to nutrition, actually the path forward, because that gives you such little wiggle room yeah. that then you might become a head case. You might become too dogmatic about your food choices to the point where now you're making mistakes because you're being too close-minded about what you should be doing. Yeah. Whereas Courtney is pretty open. I mean, I think I remember one, I think interviewer, she said like when she's, I think they were asking about her daily routine and she's like, I just have to, she's like jars of candy sitting around the house <laughs> and I'll just kind of like 
just graze on them until I have a mild stomach ache, and then I know it's time to stop. <laughs> so, like, I don't. Maybe if I would graze on candy all day, yeah. I could tolerate the seventy grams of carbohydrate per hour during race day. But that'll be the dream, right? But we, we, someone, someone who's similar. We had again. You may or may not have heard when we had one of our friends on Harry Aikens. He's a a GB hundred meter runner. Um, so he set like, mm. he won like the British records last year. He's ran a lot for Team GB and. Uh, the four by one. He runs runs a lot in the hundred meters. Been a very successful runner in a very obviously a very different sport. Being a hundred meter running, and he's quite similar. So he, with his approach to nutrition, is quite laid back. And the reason that he gives is kind of similar to what you were touching on there. There, Zach, with respect to when he's going away and he's got these races and these big occasions, often the sort of environment that's set up pre race isn't controlled by him so he kind of looks at it as like well if i'm in this real fixed mindset of what i'm doing and then the only thing i can do pre-race is like and what he does a lot of the time is he said i'll just go to mackey's right before 100 meter race for like the olympics i'm like that's crazy but for him it makes sense because he's like i'm so flexible already with what i'm doing whereas i see a lot of other runners and because they can't get their boiled chicken and rice they're flipping out because mm-hmm. the routine's gone the rituals have gone and for him being in that flexible mindset just hate helps him on race day to be more calm of where it needs to be going into the race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this, this kind of angles into a little bit of what, one of the reasons why, I mean, there's a few reasons why I don't do strict keto year round. And one of the reasons is just that where, uh, when you look at just, uh, what I'm going to need to consume on race day in a very concentrated time frame, relatively speaking for the amount of food it is, you know, you're going to like, you take someone with like really high fat oxidation rates, like myself, I'm still going to be doing like, say like 80 ish percent fat, 20% carbohydrate at my hundred mile intensity. So that means I need to account for that 20% carbohydrate. If I can't tolerate eating any carbohydrate, how am I going to defend that? Mm. Um, I mean, you can make yeah. the argument that if I went strict keto, those fat oxidation rates would go up further and maybe I could get away with say like much less carbohydrate than I already do. But from my experience, just personally speaking, like there is like a, there's a difference in my performance and training and racing when I'm strict keto versus when I'm just low carb during kind of that peaking, during during those quality, like like structured training phases of the year. So I'm always going to deviate to the results I'm seeing in my workouts and my races and stuff versus what I think is going to like work for me on paper or something like that, or what I, you know, someone tells me I should do on Twitter or something like that. (laughs) Uh, But it's a, you know, so I think like, to, to go back to your question, I think like there, yeah, there's a huge component there where like, it doesn't matter how quality your stuff is outside of competition. If in competition, you're not able to do the things you're able to do uh, that, that you need to do in order to execute. So I think another example of this is I remember a few years ago, the Olympians were all getting a bunch of shit because they're eating McDonald's the whole time. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, well, they went in there and like, it was, it was like, they didn't have a lot of options mm-hmm. to choose from because uh they needed to eat something that one, they could guarantee the sourcing didn't have any contaminants in it that they could potentially test positive or something for. And then two, they needed to eat something that they, they were, they could have familiarity with. Mm -hmm. So like there's these universal fast food chains where you can get access to like anywhere in the world. So I think some of them probably just said, Hey, if I can make the McDonald's menu work, then I'll be fine because I know I can find that. And it's like, I, I get it. Like, I mean, you're going to be at the Olympic village for three weeks. You're going to be eating the food that they have available there. And if that means, you know, learning how to navigate a McDonald's menu, then you should probably learn how to navigate a McDonald's menu. Um, yeah. It's an interesting, uh, 
set of circumstances. With your personal race days, so just to dial in a little bit to your nutrition and water and shoes and packs, when you first started doing your ultras, was there, I guess, like a few mistakes with nutrition that you've dialed into along the way? Like what you can eat, what doesn't upset your stomach, how many times you can drink water without needing the toilet every half hour. Mm. I don't know how you do it, honestly. (laughs) I've just started running with my packs. But it is super mm-hmm. interesting for people just to see, I guess, like what you would do in terms of lower carb when you are running, but for those specific races, for those 100 milers. Yeah, no, this is a really good question. So for let's start with hydration. I think this one's an interesting one. So what I do now that uh, I didn't do in the beginning, I kind of just threw stuff up against the wall in the beginning. Uh, but I like to tie about five to 700 milligrams of electrolytes for every liter of water I consume. So then at that point I can drink to thirst. So like, as long as I have that kind of formulation of five to 700 milligrams of electrolyte per liter of water consumed, uh, then if I'm thirsty, I should drink. And then I just, just listen to my body at that point. Then if it's warm and I'm sweating more and I need more water, I'm just drinking more. And I just have that ratio dialed in. Uh, if, what I suggest people do is try that in their long runs. If you notice that you're, uh, you have a situation where like your thirst is unquenchable, no matter how much you drink, you maybe are need to dial back the electrolytes a little bit. If you have a scenario where like you're, um, you're like constantly, you're constantly having to go to the bathroom, uh, and you're not thirsty, even though you're losing quite a bit of water weight, then you maybe want to up the electrolytes a little bit. Uh, but that five to 700 milligrams per liter, I think is a pretty good starting point. And, and, and that happens to work quite well for me. So I usually stick with that. The next is like the fueling. So like, there's kind of two things that I had to adjust to throughout my career. One was the quantity of what I ate during the races. When I first started ultra marathoning that my first like full season, I did 350 milers. And for those races, I was moderate to high carbohydrate in my day-to-day life. And, uh, when I was targeting kind of that, I think I was targeting maybe 60 to 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour during those races. Um, the first mistake I made was I did all basically sports products, engineer fuels, like, like sports drinks, gels, that sort of stuff. That was just like a recipe for a gut bomb. It didn't typically happen during the race, but I could just tell, like when I'd get near the end, it was like, if I kept doing this for a few more hours, it'd be a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one, well, sometimes the disaster does happen just after the race. You're like, well, I'm glad I'm done. So, <laughs> but the, you start, when if it's a 50 mile race, you start thinking like, well, what happens for a hundred mile race? Cause then I'm going to still be out there when this happens. And, and that's often where I think people catch people catches people when they start getting up into those double digit hour timelines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so the next thing I did was, okay, there's some application here, given the nature of this sport to not just do the sports products. Like if I'm doing a marathon, I want something like super easy, probably liquid, if not gel. Uh, and that's all I'm really gonna take. I'm not going to have like a sandwich or something solid food or a piece of fruit, most likely during a, a marathon or a 10 K or a half marathon, but during a 50 miler, a hundred K a hundred miler, having a little bit of solid food, you're going slow enough that you might actually want to slow that digestion along a little bit by having some of those solid foods they're typically going to have at least trace amounts of fat and protein in them, which can also kind of help with digestion a little bit. So I switched then to like kind of a 50, 50 split of say engineered sports products and some solid foods. Uh, I like to go 
flavor and consistency contrast. So you don't get bored with one or get what we call like palate fatigue. Mm -hmm. So if I had like a sports products, they tend to be liquid gel, sweet flavored. My solid food option tended to be like more like dry, salty, savory, crunchy. Mm -hmm. And, and then it was like, then I just like, what would happen is I would do that. And that seemed to work a little bit, but I still had the issue of feeling like I was taking in more than my body was able to process. So then, it, then that's when I started doing the low carb stuff, which I kept that framework of 50, 50 split between kind of engineered sports products and solid foods. So, sorry, what, so uh, what, sort of, I, what sort of foods do they include? And then have you kind of just on the solid food? Sure. Yeah. So for the, the sports products I use is a company called S fuels. They I'll use race plus on yeah. the race day. And then the solid foods tend to be something like salty, savory, crunchy. So like crackers, pretzels, bread with some peanut butter yeah. and maybe a little bit of honey on it, that sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, you could even do like, like salty chips or something like that. These things, like yeah, a lot of people learn about these things from aid station tables. Cause these aid station tables, they'll have all the sports products yeah. there, but they'll also have like, like bowls of different, like, just like finger foods essentially. So, um, you find you, you kind of, you can stumble upon things that, that work well for you or, or there's some other good ones too, or like, if you want to get creative in the kitchen before, like, uh, like white rice tends to work quite well. And you could add some salt to that. You can even fry it up with a little bit of bacon. So you have a little more of that savory taste, a little bit of fat in there and, and make like a little like rice cake type of thing is a, is a good option that I've seen people do. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot, you can get pretty creative with that side of things. And, and usually what I recommend with people is like, you know, once you get into that, say six to eight week window before the race, and you're starting to dial up your long run, start practicing with that stuff, whether you're going to kind of go my route where you're doing a little bit of a lower carb approach. So you're going to be targeting a little less intra workout, intra race fueling. Um, you can still practice that. And I do like when I'm doing my long runs leading into a race, I'm, I'm targeting that kind of 30 to 40 grams of, of fuel from like a 50, 50 split of sports products to solid food options and uh, trying to dial in those numbers to see how I feel and make sure that things are still working for me and, and just making sure I'm introducing those foods and those products to my digestive system. So it's not such a foreign uh, product to me on, on race day. And, and that tends to, to work well. I, I'll also sometimes start shifting the carbohydrates I do consume more towards the solid food options I'm going to have on race day. So I have even more exposure points to that, that food group leading into the race itself. Yeah. That's cool. so interesting. Be interesting for you if you're hundred yeah, so k anyway. Just some tough seeds taken. Yeah, I'm taking it all. Then I'm gonna go back over the podcast <laughs> and make all the notes. Yeah, because we we live down by a canal in Central Lucy. Drink so much during the runs, don't you? Like you just end up squatting down by the canal every yeah, thirty minutes. Yeah, I do do that. That's because I've because I came from such a swimming background for so many years. Uh huh. I have so much water naturally in my diet, just on a day to day mm. basis but I will be trying the electrolytes mm. and dialing in a little bit more because it's all a learning curve for me. And I love learning from people like yourself and listening to podcasts and experts. And yeah, I'm going to be taking all of this away. hundred percent. So you're finding you just have to use the bathroom a lot more all the time. You drinking too much, too much liquid. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if like, as the race gets longer too, my guess is that'll balance out a little bit along the way. The interesting thing with ultra marathons, they did do some research on this and what they came up with is, that there's really no way for like a, a, a full day run that you can actually stay on top of hydration. Like your body just can't process mm -hmm. it fast enough. So you, you shouldn't fight that necessarily. So you're going to finish the race slightly dehydrated. The goal is to like not get so dehydrated that like your performance really dips. The nice thing is since it's long, the intensity is low enough. You can dip lower into your, 
uh, hydration or you can get more dehydrated before seeing a significant performance dip compared to like some of these like shorter, faster endurance yeah. events. Um, so I, I would wonder if like, as you get out and your body kind of balances things out over the first couple hours, if you notice there's less of that happening when you get out there, but um, yeah, a little more, a little more salt or electrolytes before might kind of help you retain a little bit of that. And then you'll just sweat it off along the way. So there you go. Cool. So the thing I was also also interested in, I wanted to ask you, what because we were again loose, we've changed and gone through like tons of different shoes. What what shoes mm. are you using at the moment? Yeah, I'm running with a company called Ultra Footwear. Ultra so Footwear. they make like a shoe that has like a balanced platform, which just means the heel and the forefoot are the same distance. You, the gym community, you guys are all in all that. You guys wear Chuck Taylors to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> balanced platform. Yeah, like Arnold. So like they're, they're yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, uh, or the, the idea there is that you, you don't necessarily take the cushion off the way like a minimalist shoe would, although you can do that if that's something that you, that, that you feel is going to work well for you personally. But, uh, their concept is we have the cushion there, but we have you on a, a balanced platform. So we're not artificially elevating your heel. Uh, what that's going to do is it's going to give you the full range of motion in your Achilles tendon. Um, which is good because you want that Achilles tendon to have that full range of motion. It's like a spring in the back of your foot. So you want to use that whole thing if you can. Um, and then from there, they also add some other kind of natural components, like a foot shaped toe box. So like most shoes kind of taper in on both sides to a point, or at least a semblance of a point. There's kind of rounds on the outside edge and it's a little straighter on the side. So you get that room for your toe, your, your, your big toe, which is the one where your power is going to channel mm -hmm. through that one you really want to have like free and not kind of pushed in uh, so that you have that freedom to kind of toe off in a really efficient way. Um, and so that foot shape toe box bounce cushion is kind of like the stuff that works really works well for me. And then it's just kind of a, a determines like what shoe will depend on like the environment and like the race itself. So if it's a trail, I might use one of their trail models. Yeah. If it's a road one, their road models, the, the interesting shift has been, and this is for shoes in general, we talked about this a little bit, was the shoe technology, is historically racing shoes, you kind of wanted to get as low profile as you could get away with without hurting yourself. So like racing flats were what they sound like. They were flat, they were small, they were light, they were very little cushion, if any, in some cases. Now with the new shoe foam technology, you want as much of that in your shoe as you can get. It's like the more you stack into it, the better efficiency you get from it. So it's to the point where, uh, World Athletics has regulated to agree. I think it's 40 millimeters a stack is what they limit you at having with that. Whereas if you remember back when Kipchoge did the sub two hour um, expedition, I think that was a prototype they used that yeah. technically they weren't able to, I think it was like 60 millimeters yeah. or something like that. <laughs> so Wasn't there some controversy around the, was it the carbon plates as well? Or like how many there was? Yeah. Yeah. They limit it now, I believe to one carbon yeah. plate. You can't put more than one. I want to say the ones that they had before the regulation is like a 60 millimeter cushion with like layered of three carbon plates in there. Yeah. So the carbon plates, I think are a little overplay. That's kind of a little more of a marketing play. In my yeah. opinion, most of the performance is from that midsole foam mm -hmm. that, uh, that stuff is where, where the money's made from the, um, from the performance side of things. Mm -hmm. I will be looking at getting those shoes also, riding yeah. that brand down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's almost a necessity now. It's yeah, like the the sport has sure. decided that it that's the that's the the path forward at the moment. So um, the hard part, I think, is just uh, you know Nike came out with the original prototype back in like the mid two thousand and teens. So you know a lot of the Nike athletes had access to that 
technology before the regulations. And then uh, once like the research came out on the performance benefit of it, I think world athletics and all the governing bodies realized, okay, we have to do something about this. So then they start regulating prototypes, meaning like, well, first they regulated what you could use in competition with the stack height and the plates, which still has a plenty of room and room for uh, uh, performance boost. I think the two to 8% performance is within the regulation. Mm. Um, but you have to get any prototype shoe has to be publicly available before it can be used for a world championship, Olympic or world record attempt. So then you have the situation where like all the other brands have to catch up and bring a shoe to market before their athletes can use it. There were, there are some workarounds you can do. Like uh, you can get an exemption for a, for a prototype for racing. I still think you can't use it in world championships, Olympics and world record performances. Mm-hmm. If it's not to market, most brands now do have a shoe to market, but due to the urgency, I think a lot of them rushed it to market a little yeah. bit. And you have this scenario where, one super shoe is not created equal. <laughs> so <laughs> like, I mean, I feel bad for, uh, but I mean, feel bad is maybe strong, but like, I mean, Jim Walmsley ran a hundred, incredibly impressive hundred K. This would have been a little over a year ago at this point in, uh, in, in a, in a, in a carbon shoe. But when the research came out later, like that carbon shoe that he used was like the least performance inducing out of all of them. So like, his, he ran like a 609 100K, which is like a sub six minute pace for 100 kilometers. And I think there was a little a little bit of uh, like, I don't want to say backlash, yeah. but like a little bit of like, oh yeah, but what if he had to do it in a regular shoe? Like, well, he basically did. Mm. Like, it's just yeah. called a You're always going to get people like that though. And you're always going to get people yeah, who just want to say, oh, it's, it's not because he was a great runner. It's because he had this small advantage. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'd have to, there's a lot of mental gymnastics if you want to argue that Jim's not a good runner, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but I think with that particular performance, I think like when I found, when I saw that research study, I mean, I, I thought the same thing. I'm like, yeah, I wonder what he would have done in a regular yeah. shoe because like the, the technologies it's there. Like, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear in the research. So my thought was, yeah, it's a great race regardless, but I wonder what it would have been if he had worn like what, you know, the guys in the eighties were running in. And I mean, to a degree, you're not always have that question because there's always going to be innovation, whether yeah. it be with nutrition, technology, just, you know, research gets better, protocols get better. So you're always going to have a little bit of like, well, if I had access to that, yeah. then, you know, that kind of stuff. But, uh, but for him, I thought I felt bad when I saw that research because I'm like, he actually basically ran in a standard running shoe and everyone was going in or everyone's considering that performance as one that was shoe aided. Yeah. And it, it maybe wasn't. To, to the degree at least they're thinking but uh but that's the other side too is like you get these performance variances from one person to the next in the same shoe too yeah. so not only do you have a variance from one brand to the next you have a variance from one person to the next where your foot strike might only produce a two percent benefit whereas someone else's foot strike might produce like that upwards to eight percent so it's like how do you manage that when we're working with like the tip of the spear and there's like a you know, a very, very tight margin between first and fourth place or, you know, winning and getting second and these sort of things. Yeah. What's, what do you think the impact is or how often and regularly do you change your running shoe? Like what's the impact of not changing it regularly enough? Because for example, I'll see some people who will run in the same shoe until the toes are literally (laughs) hanging out the front of them and flip-flopping along, mentioning their names. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think this is probably going to depend. I mean, there was a, 
I'd have to look to see if this is stands true with the whole body of research, yeah. but I think like there was some research that there's actually more injuries that occur when you start off with a new shoe versus like at the back end of a shoe. Because you got to wear and them in. You got to wear them in and like you probably are creating a much more drastic change in your experience changing out of a shoe that has like say 400 miles in it to someone that's at zero mm -hmm. versus say like the incremental change of that shoe over the course of like months that it takes you to get to that 400 mile mark. So like if I go for a run in the beginning and my shoe's really nice and soft and then the next day it's slightly less, the next day slightly less, slightly less, it's an incremental change that my body can probably keep up with. But uh, if it's like a drastic change from like now I'm wearing this packed down firm shoe and I'm going to this really plush new foam uh, shoe, then maybe you get a bigger, a bigger risk of injury because there's more things changing from that old model to the new model, even if it's the exact same model or the exact same like brand and model. So I think there's something maybe going on there. Uh, really what that tells me is you just rotate shoes. So don't just use one pair all the time for everything it might be worthwhile to have like a, what I call a shoe quiver where you get a, a like two or three pairs and uh, you know, you don't have to go to the store as often for them. Mm -hmm. And you will probably actually get a few more miles out of them by doing it that way. Cause the foam doesn't break down as quickly if you're spacing out your runs in a lot of cases. So uh, you know, that might be a good option so that you're able to phase in different shoes at different stages of their life cycle uh, the other thing you could do too, is rather than waiting up until that very last run where the shoe falls apart, uh, get that new shoe when you have say hundred, 150 miles left on your old pair, and then start wearing that new one, like once or twice during the week, uh, while you're kind of phasing it in versus go going abruptly from one to the next, That's cool. probably a good strategy for most. Yeah. So there's mm -hmm. some overlap. There. And then it just, yeah. And then it just comes down to like what the person is specifically dealing with. I mean, some people, their foot strike and their gait and stuff. Uh, and like kind of what we talked about earlier in the show is, uh, if, if a soft shoe is going to alter your mechanics enough where it negatively impacts the way those impact forces are going to your knees, hips and ankles and things, then, uh, you know, you might want to focus on something a little more firm. Whereas if a firm shoe does that to you, you might need something that's a little more cushioned. I think this is fairly general, mm -hmm. um, but I usually find that if someone's dealing with lower leg issues, like foot and ankle stuff, calf stuff, a little cushion can be helpful because that's going to probably dampen the impact forces in the lower part of the leg. Someone's dealing with something higher in the kinetic chain, like their knees, their hips, their lower back, a firmer platform doesn't necessarily have to be minimalist, but a firmer foam. So it doesn't compress quite as much when you step down into it might be a little better because it's going to just be, it's going to create an environment where you're probably a lot more likely to step in the precise location of your foot where it's intended to absorb those impact forces versus that soft cushion, which just gives you a little more freedom to kind of feel comfortable striking anywhere. And then the damage might come further down the road versus like immediately when you kind of feel that sharp pain, when you step down on a firmer surface with no cushion. Yeah. Amazing. Um, just before we sign off today, this has been the most insightful podcast, especially probably for our listeners as well. And we have a lot of people who they don't necessarily do these 20, 30 mile runs. They're more five to 10 Ks. But do you have any mm -hmm. advice for those beginner runners or just in general people who want to progress more with distance and maybe get their first half marathon or their first marathon? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, the the big variance I think would be order of operations. So like some of that stuff I said in the beginning about kind of doing those short intervals first, 
like longer intervals, tempo rounds, like near the middle and then focusing on longer in their end, that's going to change a bit. I think when someone's doing a 5k or 10k, it's, especially if you're a beginner, um, you, first of all, start where you're at. Like just because your friend is running like 40 miles a week, doesn't mean you need to be doing 40 miles mm-hmm. a week right out the gate. You definitely want to make sure you're recovering. So take your principles from the gym into the running where like, you break yourself down on the workout, you build yourself up on the recovery. Yeah. Same way. Like if you go and do a workout that next day, that's when you're actually getting better is what you're doing in that rest day. So focusing on kind of huge, like the big movers, like sleep, nutrition, and proper stress and recovery balance is key. Uh, most people know whether they're sleeping well or not. I mean, like to a degree anyway, like if you're staying up late and setting an alarm clock early, you're probably not getting enough sleep. If you're, uh, you know, if you're eating a bunch of junk food and, uh, you know, not drinking any water, you're probably not doing your nutrition right. But the training balance is the one that I think people have to give a little more thought to. And so start slow within yourself. Um, I like to do a foundational development kind of early on, if you're really new to running or never done it before. So spend good eight to 12 weeks, just kind of running what I would consider in an easy pace. So like below your aerobic threshold, other ways to look at this, if you're new to running and you don't understand some of the terminology is like a pace that you could run and breathe in your nose and out your mouth or a pace that you could run and carry a conversation without losing your breath. Mm -hmm. If you start pushing a little bit harder and all of a sudden it's like, I can barely get a sentence out without losing my breath, or I'm gasping for air. If I'm breathing through my nose and out my mouth, that could be a good indication. You're pushing up into kind of a moderate intensity, but spend a good eight to 12 weeks, just developing that stuff. And it can be something as simple as just running like three times a week with, uh, with that framework, then start kind of focusing on some of the quality sessions and bringing in, some of the work that's going to maybe be more beneficial to the pace you're going to run for, let's say that 5k or 10k. So then you're maybe bringing in a combination of like some short intervals and long intervals in your training. uh, And uh, eventually, depending on the distance, developing a little bit of a long run too. I think a long run development once per week is going to be a good idea, regardless whether doing a 5k or a hundred miler, it's just going to be different. Like you're not going to do back-to-back 30 mile long runs when you're doing a 5k, like I will be for a hundred mile. You might get your long run built up to say like, you know, an hour and a half or something like that, where it's a, you know, a little less time on feet, but relatively speaking, it's longer than the Mm -hmm. time you're going to spend out there for a 5k in most cases. Yeah. Yeah. I think I like that analogy about the gym because that was one of the things that I had to apply when it came to the easy runs, because Mm-hmm. for a new runner I think what the tendency is just to go fucking hard all the time like you, there's, no, yeah. there's no real concept of easy runs and it's like when you for example go to the gym and you you've built up to a certain weight and you're a bit of like you're lifting with bad form maybe you've got to strip the weight back and really start mm-hmm. dialing that form again and go back before you can go forward I found that really difficult with running because when I had to start doing the easy runs I was like fuck I'm running so slow I feel like I'm almost walking to meet to meet what my heart yeah. rate needs to be like that that's uh-huh. I think that's hard sometimes to digest when you're kind of starting to move from being like a beginner running to really considering uh, what is good for you to progress and not just go out hard all the time mm-hmm. yeah I think a lot of runners they do find themselves getting themselves to a point where they push a little bit too hard in their everyday runs or their, like their, their foundational miles. And I don't want to like demonize moderate intensity running. Cause there's definitely a place for moderate intensity running. In fact, it's typically what people are using for half marathons and marathons yeah. in most cases. But, uh, if you're always doing moderate, you find yourself in this position where then it's too difficult to really recover from the way you would an easy run. 
but it's not fast enough to really tap into the higher intensity stuff you maybe want to be doing. So then you end up in this situation where you're not necessarily recovering the way you want from one run to the next. And then you're, so you're not doing your hard runs fast enough, and then you're not doing your easy runs mm -hmm. easy enough. So there's a balance there and that includes moderate running. But if like a huge chunk of your foundation is in the moderate intensity, then you're probably going to find a dead end in that approach at some point. Mm -hmm. Well, Zach, thank you so much for coming on today. You are honestly insane and just your your journey and your <laughs> your knowledge is just fucking in, yeah. inspiring. You're almost like the for us the yoda of the, the running world. And I'm sure a lot of people <laughs> will take a lot of um, knowledge away from today. But if if people want to find out a bit more about you and watch more of your content and, and listen to more of your what the message that you're spreading, where can people find more of you? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me on. It was yeah, a welcome. blast chatting with with both of you. I'd, I'd love to have the both of you on my podcast at some time when you have a have a free minute or two. Yeah, for, definitely. Uh, but um, where you can find me, like everything is linked to my website at zachbitter.com. It's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. Uh, I'm most active on Instagram for social media channels, and that's just at Zach Bitter. My podcast is called the Human Performance Outliers Podcast, and that's on all podcast platforms, YouTube, and then links and landing pages on my website for that as well. Cool. I mean, we'll, we'll pop all the links so that all listeners can can tune in and, and find your podcast, mate, as well, because we've listened to some episodes on there, and it's, it's fascinating as well. But if you guys all listen to the episode today, please, please tag me, Lucy, and Zach, and any of the story reshares and stuff, and leave some feedback, and, and please leave any reviews on Apple and Spotify. Or if you're watching on YouTube, yeah. don't forget to subscribe as well. And we'll catch you in the next one. Bye, guys. Bye.